It's Monday. June 10th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Simmerman, and this is episode 210 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is bass player, composer, world traveler, Melvin Gibbs. Let's have a listen. This is his band with J.T. Lewis and Brandon Ross called Harriet Tubman. Melvin Gibbs is on the show today, and it's a good one. Today on the show, Melvin Gibbs. Before we get into it, thank you to everyone who reached out uh, to say that they enjoyed the episode with Evan Parker. That was a big one for me. I, uh, I'm really glad that it finally happened, and I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. I also want to let you know that I've got some dates coming up outside of New York. August 8th to the 16th, Toby Driver, my good friend and, and longtime collaborator, we're going to be doing uh, a week up around the Northeast into Canada. We'll each be doing uh, solo sets. August 8th to the 16th. I'll be posting those dates soon. I also want to say that if you're enjoying this podcast please consider becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Become a monthly donor, five bucks a month. Uh, It goes a long way. This is a listener-supported show, and I promise you that every little bit helps. All right, today on the show, Melvin Gibbs. What do you guys know about Melvin? I imagine uh, for many of you, you're, you're quite familiar with him. If not familiar with his entire output, at least uh, certainly part of it. For the better part of 40 years, Melvin has been really active here in New York and around the world. Uh, I think like a lot of people uh, in my age and, you know, similar to my background, I actually first heard Melvin when he was playing with Rollins Band. And because of the audience of this podcast, uh, I, I should be clear that I'm not talking about Sonny Rollins. I'm talking about Henry Rollins. Uh, In the early 90s, Melvin joined the Rollins Band, and I actually saw them live with Helmet, 1994. It was great. Uh, Obviously, Melvin's world is much larger than that. He's originally from Brooklyn. And as you'll hear on today's show, he's really spent his entire life uh, honing a musical vision. One of the first groups he played with, uh, you know, with, uh, with some prominence was the band Defunct, led by Joseph Bowie. He played for years with Ronald Shannon Jackson, with Sonny Chirac, Ardo Lindsay, Elliot Sharp. Are, are you noticing there's sort of a through line here? Being that he has been, he was on uh, the first Dead Prez record, one of my favorite hip-hop albums of all time. Melvin has really, and he continues, to play across a wide, wide variety of musics. And uh, he does, I'm looking at his discography right now, I didn't even realize that he was on the Big Gun Down. The, the early Zorn record, the tribute to, to Ennio. Um, in addition to all of that, he was an original member of the Black Rock Coalition. Vernon Reed, Greg Tate, Angelo Moore, Corey Glover. Important, important, important work. 
I'm putting this episode up today because this week, Melvin is premiering a new project at the Vision Festival. Tomorrow night in Brooklyn at Roulette, the 24th annual Vision Festival kicks off. It's going on all week, the 11th to the 16th. On the evening of the 13th, Melvin is premiering a new project called God Particle. Large group with James Brandon Lewis, who's been on the show. Luke Stewart, who's also been on the show. Uh, Will Calhoun, who some of you might know from Living Color. Stefan Alexander, Graham Haynes, Mark Carey, and David Pleasant. God Particle, very quickly, is a collaboration with uh, physicist and musician Stefan Alexander. He published a book uh, just a few years ago called The Jazz of Physics, The Secret Link Between Music and the Structure of the Universe. I will let Melvin describe the collaboration uh, on today's show. Needless to say, what Melvin and Stefan are cooking up is going to be something really special. That's happening this Wednesday night, June 13th, 8 p.m. at Roulette as part of the Vision Festival. If you want to find out more about the Vision Festival and see the entire lineup, which I suggest that you do, go to artsforart.org. All the information is there. Uh, I'm going to put a link to it directly on the 5049 website. But check it out, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Melvin Gibbs has been working really hard, tirelessly. Uh, He's a real innovator. He's an unbelievable bass player, and I think there's a lot of good stories on today's show. Go to artsforart.org, get your ass down to roulette, and uh, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Melvin Gibbs. You know, that's what politicians are. Yep. Historically, anyway. When you see someone like Bernie Sanders, you're just like, what? I'm supposed to buy what from this guy? <laughs> you know what you're going to buy. You can buy some furniture, man. So, so Bernie Sanders, you're from Brooklyn, so he's he's a familiar figure. He's an archetype, dude. And I always <laughs> tell people that. I mean, the backstory for me is um, from, you know, we moved to our, the area of Brooklyn where I basically grew up when I was in third grade, and we were the second second african-american family on the block it became where'd you move from uh bedsty okay and the street my parents live on is literally the border between flatbush and ditmas park oh it's very jewish over there and uh they lived on the ditmas park side of the street okay. so i went to school in, in the ditmas park schools as uh-huh. opposed to flatbush schools so he's <laughs> i know that person well <laughs> He's like, you know, like the father of the kids, you know. I always say he's the father of the kids that used to get sent to the kibbutz every summer. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, but he's also like for me, you know, he and I share a pretty similar bloodline. Yeah. <laughs> like I I know what it's like to grow up in a house with lots of yelling mm-hmm. and lots of, you know, and it's just that that frequency. I believe that's the frequency he operates at. Yeah. I'll bet there's a lot of yelling in his house. Yeah, probably, you know, he's 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 a hot player to do. But yeah, it was those days were crazy. I mean, I remember like grandmas with numbers on their arms, and you know, yeah, it was it was for real. You know? So wait, what you you were a kid there when in the 60s, 70s? Uh, 
I guess I turned, you know, yeah, 60s, yeah. graduated high school in 75. So. Yeah. Wait, did you go to Midwood High School or did you go? No, I went to, well, this is this is its own mini story. I went to Aviation High School in Queens. I actually made it into Stuyvesant, but decided uh-huh. not to go because I hated the other kids in my school who were going there. That was not one of the smartest decisions of my life. But, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> what would you be doing differently with the base had you gone to Stuyvesant? Oh, you know, I know a different set of people, but that that's that that's neither here nor there. Yeah, but now, I mean, I don't like. I got friends, you know, who are like having kids in New York and raising kids, and I mean, they're like, you start looking at high schools when they're in like second grade. Yeah, it's that's so how you weird. Do it. But it, is, it all goes to the neighborhood, anyway. Yeah. So at that time, it was basically just the three high schools, and then you know, the the next best one after those three was aviation. So I went to aviation. Yeah. Because, you know, the test was for the three high schools for tech, uh, Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. So I didn't go to either one of them. My sister went to tech. Uh-huh. Uh, unbeknownst to me, simultaneously, Vernon Reed was going to tech. You guys are the same age? Right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Yes, we're the same age. Yeah. So. You, I mean, you've known him for, for quite a while. Yeah, I met him when I was... 17? Yeah. All right. So you grew up uh, on the border of Flatbush and Ditmas Park. Yeah. And you said you were one of three black families in the neighborhood? One, the second black family that moved on that block. And when you, do you remember uh, how the neighborhood reacted to you? Was it seamless or was it like? I always tell people I'm the first black person that whole side of Brooklyn ever met. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was on the basketball, we were on the church basketball team and, you know, yeah. we used to go up all the neighborhood. No, it was, you know. You know, it's funny because, as I've said in other contexts, one of the reasons I didn't listen to Black Sabbath for a long time was because the stereotypical racist uh, kid in that at that era was like some Italian kid from Bensonhurst with uh-huh. a Black Sabbath T-shirt. So I just associated them with racism. Absolutely. So I, I just didn't listen to them. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That's yeah. I think that's really common. Yeah. I I, uh, I hated Metallica pretty much my entire life still. Uh, because of like the redneck assholes around yeah. me that listen to it. Yeah. Well, it's funny how I got it, how I got into Metallica. That's actually one of my great stories. Really? Yeah. How? Well, one of them fun, not great story, but a fun story. Well, what is it? Well, I was working in Tower at the time. Tower the one on Broadway. Was, and yeah, yeah. And I walked in there, and some metal came on. I can't remember, like uh, one of those hair bands, whatever. Anyway, I was listening. I'm kind of like, oh, this sounds kind of cool. And one of the guys on the floor comes to me. That's not good. That's poser music. Yeah. And then, let me make you a tape of some real music. So he made me a tape, and what was on it was Metallica, Voivod. Oh. Uh, Slayer. Slayer. Um, what else was on there? Can't remember, but those were the main three. Yeah. So. Was Anthrax on there? I mean, they're often seen as being I don't rem- part of that I don't pantheon. remember if, if, no, I don't think Anthrax okay. was on there. But I knew about them from, from other kinds. Because they're from like Brooklyn, I think, right? I don't know. Long Island, maybe. I mean, Vernon's friends with Scott, so I don't. You yeah. have to ask him. Uh, yeah. So that's how I, you know, so that's how I got into Metallica. But that was like early Metallica. That would be like, like Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets. Master of Puppets. Yeah. yeah. Before yeah, early, early stuff. When it was. Yeah. I mean, cool. so you know, so that's so that's how I actually started listening to them. I mean, you know, I'm from New York, and you know, I was up on, you know the New York hardcore scene and, you know, the brains and all of that. But like I said, because of this taint of these these other kids that I used to literally get in fistfights with, I did a whole 
kind of music I just didn't listen so to. So what was the music you were gravitating towards? Well, you know, a bunch of different things. I mean, many, many different things that at the time didn't go together and go together now. I mean, my I'm a bass player, so I like bass music. Uh-huh. You know, I liked funk and the particular... Electric bass was the first instrument? Well, uh, simultaneous, simultaneous. And... That, that's that's a whole story in itself. Which story are we going to go down? Which road are we Let, going let's down? Start with the, let's start with the simultaneous uh, instrumentation as a kid. Well, they kind of go together. In a, oh, the simultaneous instrumentation. Uh, my very first instrument was percussion. I started off playing congas and all of that. That's 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 my root instrument. But uh, before that, I was an avid record collector. As a kid, as a kid, yes, that was seven like, inches, and yeah, I used to go to that place. There was a record store in that the the old crate diggers will know that was in the train. There was two record stores. The two two of the best record stores in New York City in those days were in train stations. Okay. There was the Latin record store that I can't remember the name of that was in the Times Square train station, and there was the one in the Sixth Avenue station that had all the seven inches and all the breakbeat like stuff. Six that like West Fourth? No, in Forty Second Street. Forty Second. Okay, okay. It was inside the train inside the train station that was literally the best store in New York City for seven inches and rare meat. The rare best fun. in that they just had everything. Had or? everything. Yeah, and I can't I can't remember the name of it, but right. anybody who's a you know one of my crate digger friends, but that those when I was in high school, those were my locations. Anyway, due to. Uh, Okay, how do I, how do I, you know, I've told this story so many times, but I'll tell uh, it one more time. Uh, the guy who lived in the next apartment to us was this guy that all the kids in the neighborhood loved because he had all these crazy pets. He had like a monkey for a pet Whoa. that he would bring in the street. You know, he had, uh, <laughs> he had, um, uh, Pa- different parrots, you know, cockatoo, like, bar- you know, people used to call like them Beretta. Was he just like a crazy guy? No, all this is, I'm getting to the point. Okay. <laughs> so, but I had never, I knew him as this, the guy with the birds. And he lived next door in a little next apartment to me, but I'd never been in his apartment. So you, but you could hear the animals through the wall and stuff? Oh, I, you know, you know they're in there. Yeah. Like, we didn't smell them, so he kept the place clean. <laughs> You know, there's the great story of the guy in the projects who had the tiger in yeah, his apartment. Yeah, I remember that. And I'm, I'm always kind of like, you must have smelled like tiger pee, like yeah. They said outside. that when they opened the door, that it was like two inches thick, like on the floor. So anyway, so at at some point, you know, being a kid, you get into your kid stuff, and I really got into the tropical fish. Okay. And uh, so I went to one day. I you know I was breeding these fish, bought the little things, started learn how to breed them and stuff because you know guppies are easy to breed. So I started with that, and I was literally walking down the street into my building with the bag, plastic bag filled with fish. And he comes walking out and he says, oh, you, you keep fish? I said, yeah. He said, come here. I'd never been in his apartment before. I go in his apartment. He's got like eight fish tanks in there. He's got this whole thing that he's doing. And it turned out that that was one of his businesses was like. Aquatics. Uh, yeah. You know, uh-huh. breeding fish for pet stores. Okay. So I guess I was 12 at the time. Yeah, I was not quite a teenager. Anyway, my father was the superintendent of the building. Okay. So he convinced me to convince my father to give us some space in the basement to expand his operation. And he was going to bring you in on it. Yes. 
Okay. So I came in. So we came in and we started this doing this fish thing. Me and my brother got it. My brother actually stuck with it longer than I did. So we basically cleaned out some space in the basement. Uh-huh. had like 20 fish tanks down there. And we started, that was our... Are, that was one of my hustles when I was like a teenager. Breeding like beta fish and all that stuff? Yeah, all of that kind of yeah. stuff. You know, Well, you know, uh, guppies, uh, the shiny ones, uh-huh. I, don't, you know, I don't know how many betas we, we did. Anyway, uh, the guy, it was his side hustle. He was actually a musician, this oh. guy. His name is Papo De Diego. He was one of Aerto's subs. Okay. And uh, he's the one who got, when he found out, you know, through this, he found out I was like a music fanatic. And, you know, I'd always wanted to play bass. He's kind of like, well, learn percussion. I'll teach you. So he started me off. So I was a conguero. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned all the basic kind of like Latin and Puerto Rican rhythms. And, Which you, know. you must have been hearing that stuff all around. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother thing because uh, my grandma and my aunt lived in the South Bronx. And when I was in high school, I lived with my grandmother for a while because, you know, when you get to be a teenager, you got to. You start elbowing with sure. your parents or whatever. So I went and lived with her. So I got deep into South Bronx music, you know, at that time. Do you remember, I, I was trying to, I was explaining this to someone the other day. Like, uh, I hate sounding, I'm not that old, but I hate sounding like an old person. That there was a time, especially in New York, where you would just hear, like your way of hearing music was out of people's car windows and out of people's apartment windows. Well, that's still that's still how it is for me. That's why I still go to my parents' neighborhood and just ride my bike around. I want If I want to keep up on what the latest in Jamaican music is or latest yeah. in Trinidadian music, I just hop on the bike and ride down there and just ride around for a while. And, and just take out. it in. Yeah, you, you go out there, you know, with Shazam. <laughs> you, that's what you took? <laughs> yeah? yeah? Okay, that's what that is. And you it picks it up? It. Yeah. You know, you know, it's the, or you know, old days you just go up to the guy and like, yo, what's what up? What is it? Yeah. And but now you just kind of like, just aiming and keep it moving. Oh, so that's good. Yeah. Yeah, but that was like a really special. Th- I feel like that's like a really New York specific thing too. Is just absorbing all the sound around you at all times. Yeah, I mean, the, th- the interesting thing about you know, that's my side of Brooklyn is that they're not. There's not going to be the shutdown that happened in Harlem. They're not going to stop people on my side of Brooklyn from playing their music they're gonna just have to get used to it yeah <laughs> they've tried a couple of times yeah but, you know unlike Harlem where they shut down the drums in the park they will not shut down the drums in Prospect Park unlike you know they've already been a couple of rumblings in the neighborhood about people trying to you know I remember last summer there was you know a woman moving on the block where one of the uh, uh West Indian Day parade right. things thing, and they were like nah the police were like nah sorry <laughs> well I mean I mean it stands no. to reason it's like yeah but it's not always like that and you know Fort Greene you know Spike's father had the problem with the woman who yeah. looks next door to him you know Harlem they shut down the drums in the park it becomes a thing but uh, my people of Flatbush, Ditmas Park, Crown Heights, <laughs> you know Canarsie they're not, not having, having it. <laughs> Brooklyn's you know even though you know it's like doing the thing with Luke Stewart and my man Kakai, bless y'all, the, the DC crew, they're having the same problem down there with the, yeah. the go-go thing, you know, people, you know, people are always trying to shut down the music, but it's an eternal thing, you know, even with, even in the, lo- even dealing with lofts, you know, it's always a thing between the musicians and the painters, you're in the building yeah. with a bunch of painters and eventually they try to shut you down. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think it'll always be a struggle. Yeah. But. but in Brooklyn, the, the music will win. So, so you're a kid, learn, studying uh, percussion with yeah, okay, the... yeah. So yeah, percussion with with Popo, Popo, and about six months in, and I'm you know I'm kind of like you know 
I pulled Papa outside one day. I'm like, you know, Papa, I like kungas and everything, but really, in music, I either want to be a DJ or a bass player. And Papa was kind of like, you know, there's no future in the DJ thing, so you should become a bass player. I, I like that advice, but he's a little wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he was very wrong. Yeah. You know, it goes to show you that your mentors aren't always correct. <laughs> but uh, he introduced me, so I was kind of like, okay, so stopped doing that when bought myself a bass. And he introduced me to one of my two main, one of my two, well, one of my three main early teachers, a man named Vic Colucci, who none of you have heard of. Hmm. Uh, the Jazz Passengers guys know him because he was in the, the Cedar Band, which was a thing that happened in the late 70s when the country actually put money into the arts and they basically put these bands together. He was a bass player in that. And he was a very interesting character because contemporaneously with somebody who became very famous, who they didn't know about each other, he had pulled the frets off of his bass. Oh. He was playing Charlie Parker songs. Okay. You know, he was doing all gotcha. of that same stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what I learned from that experience early on is that when you have a great idea, somebody else has it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you had, you know, so it's like you have to, it's not just about have, being great. It's about getting exposed so that people know what you're doing. And so he was one of major mentors for me the other major mentor came out of an organization called the muse that existed the muse yeah that existed in brooklyn in at that time in the late 70s early mid 70s and it was basically a community organization that grew out of you know the african-american struggle in bed-stuy and Uh the Everybody got together and decided, you know, we're going to do something for the community. And what the musicians of Brooklyn decided, the jazz musicians of Brooklyn decided to do is get together and put this school together to teach the kids how to play jazz. And it was contemporaneous with Jazzmobile. Which is happening up in Harlem, yeah. yeah. But uh, the Brooklyn school, uh, Reggie Workman was the the bass teacher. So he he started me off on bass on acoustic bass at the same time I was playing electric bass with uh, Vic. And the electric bass teacher there was a woman we called Miss Lucy. Miss Lucy. Uh, who was Larry Lucy's wife. Okay. Well, her name is, what's her, what, what is she a recording name? Norley King, maybe? Okay. Uh, one of the first people to be, be recorded playing electric bass. In, know, in jazz. In jazz, yeah. yeah. And... They used to be. They used to have a public access television show together. Larry, uh, oh, excuse me. The good, I'm leaving out the part. She was called Miss Lucy because, you know. Okay, we're in 2019, so don't shoot me for the sexism. I'm just telling y'all how <laughs> yes, that's, it is. That's just what it was. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She was the wife of Larry Lucy, who was Count Basie's guitar player. Right. Yeah. So um, they and they had. After after all of this in the eighties, they had a public access TV show together, or like so, Eminem or something. Yeah. yeah, so you can find it anyway. She was the one who started. She was the one who started everybody in the neighborhood off on electric bass. So it was between Vic, Miss Lucy, and Reggie. Yeah. yeah. Did uh, when when Reggie put the upright bass in front of you? Was that something that you had interested in, or he at was... the time I was very interested in it because you like jazz, or yeah, I mean I liked all kinds of music. You know, yeah, I was, I was very interested in it and. Uh, uh, 
I eventually fell off of it simply because because I was so interested in it. Uh, I wanted to be really good at it. Mm-hmm. And my arco technique was just, the arco thing wasn't coming together for me. And, you know, I tried the French bow. I tried the German bow. Arco is bowing. You yeah. Know, like, and uh, at one point I was, you know, I bought a French bow, sold it, bought a German bow. So, you know, I got somebody to give me one of them really expensive le- on land. Yeah. And I was in the, my room one day just like and i was like you know fuck this i can't it just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm already really good at the electric bass it's like this is not okay i'm not going to be egg so let me just put this thing down and the but fun, was that was there a feeling of defeat around that or was there a feeling, feeling of relief of, not even that because we're just like you know there's other things there's other instruments in the world yeah you know it's kind of like this there's, there's there's thousands you know i was already decent percussionist at that time you mm-hmm. know it's like i didn't feel the need to you know, and the thing on the electric was happening, and it was already happening. So you know, can I ask what kind of bass you were playing then? Was it a Fender? I had a what was called a, what did they call those things? It was a jazz with a precision neck. They had okay. a specific term for it back then. It it would actually be a very valuable instrument right now. Uh, <laughs> you regret getting rid of it? <laughs> no, it's just like I, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, you go through different sounds. I had a couple of different Gibsons for uh-huh. a while. It's a big hunk of wood. Yeah. Um, just trying to trying to locate what sounded best for me. Sure. Uh, no, okay, got it. You know, I had it the other way around. It was what was called a narrow neck precision. It was a, a precision bass uh-huh. with a jazz neck. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, again, still would be a valuable instrument. So, you know, I, I didn't feel the... I just felt like, you know, I have better things to do with my time. There's yeah. too many things. You got to learn how to write songs, you know. I don't know how people double, man. Yeah. Like, especially, like, I'm, I'm a woodwind player, and, you know, I know guys that play, like, five and six different horns, and yeah. I just... I don't know how you keep it together on more than two. I think, you know, I think they're, you know, you can know. I mean, they're not at the risk of sounding like somewhat like a hater there are not that many people i think who are credible doublers on mm-hmm. between electric bass and acoustic bass mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're usually drastically better on one than the other mm-hmm. and uh you know somebody like stanley clark being an exception you know mm-hmm. uh but so i didn't really that was the other thing it's kind of like you know i don't you know i don't i don't feel it plus you know that era it just it wasn't as important to the music, and it's a big thing to yeah. carry around. You know, I mean, I see those guys on the yeah. subway with the upright, yeah. and I feel for them every single time. I mean, I had a baby bass at that time too, which I was playing a bit, so that was kind of like the bridge. And eventually, I just because I, I wasn't doing enough Latin stuff, so I sold the baby bass too. So yeah, but and were you were you you know outside of the muse and having a lot of musical activity there? Were you putting together gigs and playing with people outside of there? Well, you know. uh after the Muse uh, was Mega Everest, and that's kind of where everything started, kind of came together. And Mega Everest was just basically a hack because, you know, it was the, the, it was free almost, and it was close to the house. This is the music school. And so I just went to the, the, the CUNY school that was literally closest to the house, and that was... Uh, it was literally a, a shorter train ride than Brooklyn College. So that's that, literally like how I you went. Made a there. couple of education decisions yeah. as a young man that yeah. were based on convenience. <laughs> based on convenience. So okay, I can go to Brooklyn College or I can go to Megas. So I went to Megas, but Megas turned out to be kind of pivotal because, again, interesting enough, it was run by a woman bass player. Another one. Yes, a woman named Edna Edet, who was the bass player for for the International Sweet Hearts of Rhythms. Okay. 
So she was she was the head of that music program. But the thing that made it crucial was, you know, my my seemingly unintelligent decision was actually very intelligent because because it was in the neighborhood. It was because and it had practice rooms like mm-hmm. a bunch of them. That's where everybody in the neighborhood went to rehearse. Mm-hmm. So that's where I met like everybody. That's where I met like the people who kind of became my musical cohort was just kind of running around in school and like sticking my head in here and hearing something in the rehearsal room and just going, Hey, who's that? We're talking about people you're still close with or? Well, the ones who are still alive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the ones who are still alive. Who did you meet there? Well, you know, that's why I met Vernon. That's why I started off with, with, with someone who, who became very important in my life. Uh, because of that, a man named Gary Fritz, Uh um, who, in the graffiti world is known as WG Wiki Gary. Okay, I should preface this with I skipped a year of school, so I'm actually, you know, I was actually young. Uh-huh. Younger than everybody else in the school that was kind of always the youngest guy in the room thing. Yeah. Plus simultaneously with that, I started I didn't start bass till till I was 16. I I started like minimum 3 years behind. So I had a lot of catching up to do. Mm-hmm. So I spent I spent a lot more time practicing simply because I was trying to catch up with everybody. Anyway, to the megas that's where i met gary who introduced me to vernon that's where i met person who everyone when people hear him they're always flabbergasting him the by him the greatest musician of our era and definitely of the neighborhood and now arguably there a man who's no longer with his name arthur rames okay arthur rames yes Arthur Rames played guitar, saxophone, piano. Oh. All at the level that was beyond belief. Yeah. You know, all at a level that was beyond belief. Uh, he later, when Rashid Ali heard him, Rashid basically fired, I was in Rashid's band at the time, and basically fired all of us and started doing duos with, <laughs> with uh, <laughs> started doing duos with Arthur because Arthur was the person who reminded him the most of Train of anybody he had played on with. sax. Yes, on sax. And that wasn't even. And he also played guitar at a John McLaughlin level. I knew him as more. He had a jazz fusion band that called Eternity that we all kind of worshipped. Yeah, and, Arthur Rames. Yes, I'm not. I mean, I'm like embarrassed right now that I'm not familiar with. Well, him. you wouldn't know him because you weren't from the neighborhood and. Which goes into another thing I was going to cover. You're you're from you know, the kind of '90s era of, yeah. of people as opposed to my era. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he he he. Like I said, when when she heard him, she was like, "Okay, you guys are nice. I'm playing with him now." Yeah. <laughs> so, but did he? And did you get to play with him much? Who Arthur? Arthur. We did, I didn't play with Arthur. Arthur had his own band. We didn't play with Arthur. He was just more kind of like inspirational guy that you're kind of like I always tell people the fact that he was our age from our neighborhood at that level was you looked at him and you're like okay I can be that good he's not like some guy on the stage somewhere that yeah. I gotta worship he's, like we're working with the same set of tools yeah here. it's yeah. like if he can do it you can do it so you go hear him play and what would happen is you go home and practice for five hours like I'm gonna get there you yeah I mean so healthy competition yeah well it was it was inspiration I never felt competitive with us right or any of those guys because I guess for me, because I was starting so late, it was it wasn't I wasn't you know I wasn't worried about them in that way, you know. And it ended up for me what ended up happening was, you know, I came up, you know, met Vernon, we we linked, you know, and Vernon 
decided to put a jazz fusion band together. So we did that. He had, the band was called Point of View, and we played like we played like man, you know, like how many notes per second yeah, can you yeah, get? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. did that thing as young, as young men <laughs> <laughs> known to do. And I just kind of got tired sure. of that style of music. That was you, Vernon, and who else? Uh, a drummer named Greg Barrett, who ended up for years has played with the uh, Boys Choir of Harlem and did okay. a lot of other stuff. And an incredible Cuba player named Derek Baines, who I believe no longer plays music for a living, who was in my rock band for a while and it's just he's he's another legendary people another kind of people he's from upstate new york and the people from upstate they worship him the way yeah. that us brooklyn knights worship Arthur. yeah he's one of those like legendary guys he's a direct student of lenny tristano okay and lines and, and he's just really just incredible musician all the way around <laughs> if he decided to start playing tomorrow i would you know <laughs> yeah i don't I, I just i wouldn't even he'd, he'd immediately be down you know? yeah uh anyway so so we, at this point in your life had you yet let black sabbath in <sighs> no i wasn't even thinking about black. <laughs> but on the other hand it's kind of like you know i always tell people we were we were prog heads that was the thing as yeah uh, as bass players it was the you know it was Larry Graham versus Chris Squire, you know, and I was always Team Larry at that time. So yeah, good. But you were really into playing, you know, changing time signatures. Yeah, but and- we did all the fusion stuff, and you know, I mean, and Jocko just plus it was it was this thing of it was such a high bar in the neighborhood just to be able to kind of go out in the street and say you were a bass player. I yeah. mean, he would do things like, you know, somebody would come over and we would like jump in and like, okay, we're going to play T-Town now. So we pull out the bass and we're like, bubble boys. And, you know, so I'm T-town doing it. T-Town <laughs> is like, that's that's like for electric bass players, like what Charlie Parker is, is for sex yeah. players. Yeah, what you know, at, on the other hand, like I said, I had to teach you was already, at, you know, I was already learning Donnelly and all yeah. that stuff anyway. So it wasn't that, it wasn't that big as a, a hop. Right. On a certain level, you know what I mean? So. But that was what I'm saying. That what I, the point of this is is that, you know, it was a very high bar set at a very young age. So it be, just became, it was just natural that if you were going to play the instrument, because of guys like Reggie and everybody, they just kind of seeded the water so that, okay, if you're going to play, you just better be great. You better or, be serious, yeah. Or don't bother. So yeah. it was kind of like that. Reggie's a sweet guy, but I, I know that he can be not so sweet when people aren't bringing the best that they can yeah but you know i didn't even you know you don't even think about it that way you're like i mean because we everybody was serious anyway i mean yeah and so you weren't gonna it wasn't anybody who actually showed up there what they were they weren't you know they weren't doing it because their parents made them or whatever you're doing it because you want to be good and you're just gonna you're just gonna sit down and do the work yeah doing the work wasn't it wasn't a court. It wasn't you were going to do the work. He didn't have to make you do the work. Yeah. Because otherwise, you're just not going to show up. You know yeah. I mean? But I, I think also people like on his level, uh, like real like masters and master instructors, like they don't waste their you know, they they don't waste their time with people who aren't there to do the work anyway. Yeah. Did you? So you and Vernon have this band going where you're playing as much in each song as you possibly can, but you got tired of it. Well, no. We. I mean, I'm kind of overselling the thing. No, we were playing. It was a jazz fusion band. It was the music that the kids in my neighborhood were into. That's what that's what we came up on. And I just really, as I always say, I just got tired of the sports aspect of that music. Sure. 
so I started looking for other stuff to do. And I fell in doing a bunch of different things, playing with a bunch of poets on what was then the poetry scene, which eventually became the hip hop scene because that was the time. Mm. I was doing a bunch of that. And I started linked up with the jazz musicians and eventually kind of made my way into the kind of avant-garde world. And that's kind of where I felt comfortable on a certain level. Uh, I should say that, you know, it's, it's interesting in New York. I mean, going to drop Rebo's name here because uh, when you start off as a musician in New York, there's like a few kind of starter gigs that everybody does. Mm-hmm. Like, And one of the classic one of the classic ones is Wilson Pickett. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of the, my mentors were kind of like, do not play with Wilson. <laughs> what, what, what was that advice based on? Because he's a very mean guy. Yeah. You know, and he, he may or may not pay you. You know, so uh, I didn't do it, but Rebo did. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the things we always talk about, that Rebo ended up doing that. The one gig that I did that a lot of got, you know, so somehow I ended up up in the Harlem organ scene. And I ended up kind of becoming one of the guys who, one of the, at that time, young boys that the older jazz cats would call when they wanted to do funk stuff. Mm-hmm. So I ended up playing with, with Dr. Lonnie a lot. Dr. Lonnie Smith, yeah. Yeah, and uh, all of the guys, you know, you know, up at the Breeze and Lounge, that was like one of the locations. I, I was kind of like the bass player in residence up there for yeah. a while. You know, and so I ended up, that's kind of how I ended up learning jazz and applying like jazz on the on, in practice on yeah, the bandstand on the bandstand with those dudes which is interesting later because you know it's funny talking with with Jamal Adin, he's kind of got a similar trajectory because he was playing with Charles Erlin at the time you know mm-hmm. when I was playing with Dr. Lonnie so it's this weird kind of synchronicity with with you know he was a little couple of years ahead of me because he'd already you yeah. know like I said I didn't start playing basically till 74 so it took two or three years for me to kind of get enough facility to be able to do what I wanted to do. So I was a couple of years behind him in that sense, but the the track was similar. So You know Jamal Dean a long time? Uh I guess we met must must seventy nine, eighty around yeah. Yeah, yeah, when it was master. Oh, I love Jamal. He's a great dude. He's a great person. Yeah. You know, he's really doing great things with his festival, musically, you know, they had a great conversation, him and Taurus, about uh Islam and jazz up at the jazz museum a couple of weeks ago. I went up and saw it, went up and heard that, you know, so, you know, I loved it. Anyway, so from that, I started uh, playing more with the, with the, uh, the, the jazz guys in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And I ended up in this band called uh, Band of Music, which was okay. The, the sax player was really good. The guitar player was really good. The drummer was kind of like, eh. It turned out that, the drummer was amp because drums weren't his main instrument. He was actually a percussionist. Uh-huh. And it turned out that he was the percussionist for primetime for Nets Band. When Arnett, right, 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 yeah. right, right. And it was a... Uh, a man named Adrian Day. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. And uh, the guitar player was Burn Nix, mm-hmm. which I hadn't put two and two together that Burn Nix was the same person. As primetime. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then I finally did, and I was kind of like, oh, this guy... I just thought he always told like the the illest jokes. Anyway, Burn. One, yeah, yeah. He had the, he had the most he had a great sense of humor. It's kind of like it took me a, a, a few rehearsals to kind of key in. Oh, this guy's really funny. <laughs> anyway, we were in a rehearsal one day, and he says to me, uh, "Hey, man, you know, I think you can play harmonic." I'm kind of like, "Okay, whatever." 
So uh, after rehearsal, he pulled out a couple of pieces of music, you know, written kind of weird in a harmonic way, and we played through it. He said, yeah, it sounds Just the good. two of you? Yeah, just me and him. Yeah. He said, yeah, it sounds good. He said, yeah, uh, my friend, I have a friend looking for a bass player. I'm going to give him your number. Turned out to be uh, Shannon. So Ronald Shannon Jackson. Yeah, so that's how I, for, through Burn, that's how I ended up playing with Shannon. I mean, Ronald Shannon Jackson is, like, he's play, he played with everyone. Everyone. Ornette, Eiler. Eiler, Cecil, Mingus. Ming, yeah, I mean. Everybody. I, I need to kind of, that's, that's, that's how I ended up with Shannon. I need to tell the other part of the story, uh-huh. which is, I'm still me and I'm still from Brooklyn. So I'm doing all of these different gigs. And I was doing, I was in this reggae band and uh, we did this gig in Tribeca back in the early days of Tribeca when Tribeca was like the way Bushwick was five years right. ago. Right. So I'm in there and I'm, you know, I'm reggaeing out with some guys from the neighborhood. And a friend of mine walks in who I hadn't seen in years, who was literally in the f- very first band I was ever in, a man named Alphonia Timms. Alphonia Timms. Yes. And uh, I hadn't seen Alphonia for, like I said, a couple of years at that point. I said, hey, what's up? Yeah, we hugged. We all that. We started talking. And he's kind of like, well, what you doing? I said, oh, you know, I'm playing with this drummer. Who? I said, Ronald Shannon Jackson. He said, man, I'm playing with James Blood Omer. <laughs> so it's kind of like, so we linked back up and we started playing together again. And he's the one who introduced me to Blood. Yeah. And I went over there to meet Blood, and it happened, you know, Blood was living in Soho. That's how I met Rashid through all of those guys. Anyway, Afonia is important for the following reasons. So Afonia put the band together with Trio. And we rehearsed for a while. And at a certain point, Afonia was like, yeah, man, we got to, you know, we're going to do this little, we're going to do this rehearsal, you know. Over on Prince Street, I need you to come. You gave me the address. Prince Street. Yeah. Uh. So he gives me the address, and it wasn't until I got to the <laughs> building that I realized where I was going. You're going to see Ornette. <laughs> yeah. So we get up there, and uh, basically it was like command performance for Ornette. It was like the three of us we played for. He was auditioning you? Uh, audition was. Maybe I, not the right word, but not the right. I mean, he was basically listening to Alphonse's music. I mean, yeah. So, so the three of us were playing. We played for a while, and we played a good forty-five minutes. So we finally stopped. And the first thing out of Ornette's mouth is, "I'm not going to do the Ornette accent uh-huh. because you know I don't want to be disrespectful." Melvin, how did you learn how to play like that? And I kind of just looked at him. I was like. Uh-huh. It's just how I played. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? And then he went on to something else. And that's literally the extent of my conversation with music about Ornette. Ornette just kind of like, okay, he's good. So, it. yeah. Uh, so, what ended up, the long story short is that Alphonia basically became Ornette's protege. So, Ornette mm-hmm. would kind of look in on the music and make sure everything was cool. And that's how I kind of got into that. Cert- Even though I was already playing with Shannon. Right. But that sort of solidified it. That sound, kind of solidified me being part of that crew of well, people. Well, I just want to ask you something because you know you, you said you said this a couple times that you know you you did you first played percussion. So when you were starting the bass later, you had some catching up to do. But I have to. I, I feel like starting on another instrument is actually really valuable when you start a different instrument because you're already thinking about music in broader terms. And I mean, I hear in your bass playing, especially from that era, like a pretty percussive bass sound. Like the notes, even from the E string down to the A string, like they pop out. 
Yeah, the well, G-string, I mean. Well, that was that era, too, the, the, the slap bass. No, I mean, no, the the, the percussion, the, the grounding and percussion is pretty much key to what I do as a musician. That's mm-hmm. what makes me kind of different than everybody else. And that's also what makes it that when I'm playing with guys who are playing with African rap music, whether it's in Brazil or whether they're from Brazil or whether they're from, you know, Senegal or whatever, it, 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 I can key in on with them and they always feel comfortable. They, you know, it's always funny that they always kind of look at me like, Man. Yeah, you want you one of us <laughs> exactly. You from here, but that comes from being in Brooklyn, where you know if I'm playing for Trinidadians, I gotta sound like a, I gotta play. I'm playing for Trinidadians. Yeah, they're listening. Yeah, and I'm if I'm playing for Jamaicans, I'm playing for Jamaicans. It's like I can't, you know, I'm not playing with hippies. It's got to be real. So yeah, that's that's kind. Of, or if I'm playing with Haitians, I'm playing with Haitians. So it, I I already had that grounding. So yeah, I think it's. For me, that that's kind of the secret sauce of the playing, yeah. So Ornette said, Melvin, how'd you learn to play like that? And that, you know, and I was just kind of like, that's just what I do. Uh-huh. And it's been like that ever since. It's just like what I do. So at that point, contemporaneous with that, that's that's one side of what I'm doing. The other side for that era was... Um, and I was trying to remember how I ended up linking up with that set of guys it was uh i believe i was playing with a female singer and uh uh, kelvin bell was in the band Mm. and i guess through kelvin i ended up going down and she lived actually down the street from la mama's on fourth street yeah so i ended up going to la mama's and that's where uh the st louis guys were posted up that's where uh charles bubble show was running the place Uh uh-huh and you know that's how I met Joe Bowie and all of those guys and the whole St. Louis crew eventually. Like J.D. Perrin or? No, this is, I don't remember re- meeting J.D. at that time. Okay. Uh, eventually Lester. And basically, you know, this was the end. This was the tail end of the loft era. Yeah. And that was basically the St. Louis loft. So the thing about that is they, they brought the kind of AACM bag style of uh, you just played with whoever was there. And there was, you know, I mean, that was, it was like, that place was like the, kind of like Ornette's house that, in a way. That place was kind of like a crash pad for musicians. So they would always, you could just post up there and it's like, okay, we're going to play. And some days it might be like, you know, a violin, you know, three cellos and a bass. The other day it might be three percussionists, a saxophone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but it was just like, whoever was there, that's who you played with. Did you like that? I love that. And, yeah. You know, so from being around, that set of guys that's how i ended up uh you know i guess joe boy had become tight with james chance okay when james had a falling out with his first set of musicians and he put a new band together then uh, they reached out to me talking about the contortions yeah i didn't realize he played with the contortions uh yes well the band defunct was basically James White and the Blacks without James White. Yeah. So, uh, James put this band. Joe helped James put this band together, and that band is the band that became defunct. Mm. So, and that band was myself, Ronnie Barrage, who later played with McCoy Tyner for many years on drums, Kelvin Bell, who replaced Blood in Arthur Blythe's band on guitar, Ayodele Makeru. Uh, who became like a major sort of like Broadway musician, became big and first called Broadway guy in that world, was the other guitar player. 
Bobo would be on vocals. Charles Lowe would, would sit in with the band. Um, uh, Martin, I can't remember Martin's last name now, on keyboards. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and that grew out of, you know, being, you know, James pulling us all in to do that music. And those shows were happening where? Like CB's and Mud Club? or Well, you know, the first show with James was at Max's Kansas City. Right. But the kind of home base for that era of music was a place called the Squat Theater on 23rd Street. Squat Theater. And that's that's kind of where everything kind of happened in, you know, that kind of little late 78, 79 to 80 you know, heading up towards 81, which is kind of like the so iconic at, year. Of at that. that time, you were going from the lofts over in Soho over to East 4th Street up to 23rd Street playing with everyone along the way? I was playing with everyone who wanted a bass player, <laughs> including those guys. Yeah. But I, I kind of fell into the scene, the avant, I guess the point being that sort of avant scene as opposed to the my other guys in the neighborhood who became who you know even who became like first call side men in yeah. the uh, in the R&B and rock world and it's, instead of going down that path I kind of went to the other path right a little and, more jagged a little well we were you know I was kind of me and me and Verona were kind of the misfits of the neighborhood so we kind of when I found like some music for misfits I kind of glommed onto it and then kind of dragged Vernon along with me yeah and uh, there's, I mean, there's so much. Like, we're, like we're, we're, there's so much we can talk about. And, and um, had you had you been touring much at that point? No, no, all I New didn't York. tour all New York. I mean, New York was, uh, New York was just such a fertile town at that time. Yeah. I mean, I guess I started touring was the next year eighty. That was end of seventy nine. I guess toured. In eighty, I guess the first decoding is decoding society and funk defunct ended up touring kind of at the same time, so I had to kind of negotiate that. Decoding society was Rollins Shannon Jackson's band. Yes, decoding. Uh, I guess the first thing that I played on that got released was the first decoding first I and You by Rollins Shannon Jackson. The second thing that I played on that got released was the first defunct album, mm-hmm. and it kind of came out within a few weeks of each other and the tours kind of happened simultaneously and somehow I managed to kind of hop between the two of them hop between the two of them you know? and that was your first tour experience was yeah. figuring out how to be in two places at once well you know it's kind of like <laughs> yeah I mean I rode the train from my, by myself from Den Haag North Sea Jazz Festival all the way down to uh, I had to get to Pisa by myself uh, no not Monte Catini where, where they where uh Fellini shoots his movies with such a beautiful town. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I had to get from Den Haag to Monte Catini by myself, and that, that was a great that was a great adventure, one of my first adventures. But, yeah, talking about the scene, the scene, I mean, it wasn't, it was a very, it was a lot happening at that time. Uh, the main kind of... Do you hear that? I'm sorry. Yes, They're I doing do. some construction. Sorry. Do you... <laughs> They're fixing some. They're fixing a pipe in the elevator, but that's kind of ominous sounding. I'm sorry. I'm away from them. I'm away from the stop. So, because you can always cut this together. Okay, stopped. Okay, I'm back. Anyway, <laughs> and uh, it's just gonna keep going. It, it, it won't pick up on the mics. Anyway, uh, I mean, the thing of that time was kind of when the the art people of New York discovered what black people were doing. That was kind of five years, ten years ahead of whatever they were doing, and they kind of 
had to figure out how to negotiate it. That's kind of what was happening. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and let's, let's 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 open that up a little bit. Yeah. So you're talking about the stuff that you're doing with um, the Prince Street guys. Well, I'm talking about the kind of larger arc of what was happening in New York. Because I let me go back to say, like I, I said, one of the one of the uh, uh, most influential people at that time for me was Gary Gary Fritz. Mm-hmm. And Gary was influential, not just musically. Gary is also a graffiti artist who was head of a group called the Ex Vandals, which was basically Vandals, which is basically the gang of graffiti artists in New York at that time. And Gary was is one of the first people to ever have a gallery show showing graffiti. Huh. So, you know, we were through him. And the, oh, because of who he was, all the graffiti guys from New York would come through the, you know, his house, which was kind of the post-up place, which his house is important for a variety of reasons. Uh, kind of one of the cultural, in retrospect, one of the cultural centers of New York, definitely one of the cultural centers of Brooklyn. And one of the many people I met just kind of hanging around, literally hanging around on the stoop was this kid from the neighborhood that uh introduced himself to me as Samo. And uh, and uh, y'all know him as John Michelle Basquiat. Yeah. And this goes to what I, something I used to always say. I used to, I used to there was a point where I kind of just stopped talking about my teenage years. But right. the, it, New York was just that fertile at that time. Mm-hmm. So on, on one hand, you got, you know, this graffiti scene bubbling up with all of this set of guys. You got this kind of proto- poetry scene that became the hip hop scene. Mm-hmm. You got the and then you got our mentors who are doing it who have developed this thing over the course of decades musically. Yeah. That are passing it on to us. So you have on one hand you have the loft jazz scene, you have the sort of dance music scene, you have all the different Caribbean communities that are doing their thing. That all of this is happening at the same time, kind of under the radar of like the wider world cultural world mm-hmm. of New York and when the New York kind of cultural world discovers this they kind of jump onto it. Yeah. In the meantime you have this whole no wave scene that's they're trying to negotiate their own musical thing that's kind of like an atavistic version of what the guys in the loft jazz scene were yeah, doing. Yeah. So it it was it was for from our end it was just a question of okay which one of us are the open minded ones who are going to kind of interface with what they're doing you felt that consciously at the time uh, what felt what consciously what you just said is like like how am i going to interface with this thing mm, it was more i it was more the other it was more them needing to interface with us than sure. we interface i mean i didn't think about it there. i'm i'm you know i'm kind of arrogant in that way i knew i kind of <laughs> knew that i, I mean shit you know I, when when you find out that Reggie Workman is your bass teacher, you don't f- feel the need to kind of kowtow to anybody else. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, now I'm, you know, I'm playing with Shannon. Now I'm, I'm in the house with her. And I don't feel the need. You know, no, I don't yeah. think any of us really felt. That, but regardless of that, society was the way it was. In you know, and you know, to a certain extent, still is. So there was this big sort of gap with resources, which is why the ACM started, which is why mm-hmm. the Black Rock Coalition started. It was this big gap in resources and access between, you know, the African-American community and, and But also the perception. And perception is another thing, which is brings brings up uh, something that... So, so 
Another I mean, question. I'll come back to it. So talking specific. I mean, we're, we'll we'll talk about the the Black Rock Coalition. But were these conversations? These were the conversations that you guys were having. Uh, you know, after gigs and at each other's houses about this very thing. Or which thing? Resources being more available uh, to like less resources being available to black musicians. Uh, the perception of what black musicians were doing and perhaps the limited perception of it. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is again, this is why people started organizations. I mean, I was talking about this in another context a couple of weeks ago. I mean, the idea, it wasn't even a question of being mad that you didn't get a gig because you weren't going to get the gig. It was a, So you had to make a gig. Yeah. The whole, there wasn't even like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to go, protest because i'm not no it's like there's no protest you ain't even don't even think about that you You got an opportunity you have to make it you got to go find a community center and you know you got to do it yeah so it's it's a whole nother way of thinking about how to make things happen that kind of got passed down to us the 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 inverse of that being is like when you're in even to the point of what you know joe and bobo were doing with the uh you know with with the loft it's like okay so they're in new york now they're gonna play we're they're gonna play where they are in their loft and yeah. that's what everybody did at that time I and mean, when it was space was there now, i mean that was that was the gist of why the loft scene existed because okay we gotta play and you're yeah. like gonna let us play so we're gonna play in our houses yeah and we'll make that the scene that's really what it when when it come down at the end of the day that's, that's what it. it was yeah so um so yeah, it was a constant conversation. I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's, and basically in terms of okay, so you know, you you're creating this thing, and to say it's watered down would be an overstatement, but to say it's being translated, it's how can I put? I'm trying to figure it out. There's like a translation point. I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with a bunch of people who are in the art world who have their art student way of thinking about music, that's valid in its own right. And I'd never personally had a problem with that. And I never personally had a problem with even the idea of somebody who can't, you know, ironic enough, learning from people, right? It's like, okay, if you can't play mm-hmm. and you're not framing it as you playing an instrument then okay well let's what what is that i don't care you know right i don't i'm not necessarily against that idea if you're trying to if you're creating a language that's you know i'm i'm, I'm with that as long as sure if, as soon as that language becomes a borrowing of the language that already exists then that's when it becomes that's when you got to have a different conversation yeah so i think to the credit of that set of people that we were around, I mean, it, it was always, uh, it was always on the surface. It was never, in, and it was always a dialogue. You're talking about like, like groups like DNA or? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, you know, I don't, I, it was never, it was never a question of, okay, these guys are ripping, you know, group A is ripping off group B. It was more a question of group A has access to a certain set of resources that group B doesn't have access to, so therefore we have to negotiate. Whatever happens in group B has to happen through group A. That's right. kind of, that's kind of how it turned out. So that 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 kind of that kind of colored things and it also kind of colored what 
what ended up coming through, what ended up coming through musically and what didn't, you know, so. You mean you, when you say what came through musically and what didn't, do you mean like you were on some level deciding what you would introduce into the music and. No, it was more the other way around. It's like you got up. Well, that's just two different conversations. Okay. I mean, uh, keeping it directly to what was happening at the scene at that time, you had this kind of weird sort of bifurcation, you know, between what was happening in the no wave, quote, improv scene and what was happening in the free jazz, quote, mm -hmm. funk, quote proto hip hop scene and it was, I was you know for me I was I was going always going back and forth across those scenes uh but you know I, the the overall question is a question about resources and how what what that is and the resource that the African American community had was all of these ideas these concepts that have been developed over time that just got they all entered into the culture at that time hip hop entered into the culture at that time the graph world entered into the culture at that time uh the free jazz thing entered into the culture and then you know then that by 84 you know we had the republican thing and that that you know that, and that's just being picked up again now but i think in terms of directly how it affected me it was def it was definitely a question of okay let me let me try to forget how to frame this my set of guys everybody that we came up with is they're all like master sidemen right you know what i mean uh because that's what the resource that you know, that's where the resources were open to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, Vernon cracked. The, Vernon kind of broke that mold, and part of the Back Row Coalition was to break that mold. But I always say, you know, think of guys like like our competition. We were the Brooklyn guys, mm -hmm. and our competition was guys like Marcus Miller, Omar Hakeem, sure, you know, JT, who's in who I'm on with Tubman now, JT Lewis. Yeah, he yeah. had. A, he, I give you an example, a, a, a more. Moving up the road a few minutes. Uh, in the early days of Black Rock Coalition, my band I and I, would, uh, our favorite double bill was with a band called Sirius, which was J.T. Lewis on drums, a man named Sean Solomon on guitar, Ronnie Drayton and on guitar, one of the great guitar players that y'all don't know about, who was actually ended up playing with Blood after Alphonia, and Bernard Fowler on lead vocals, who is uh -huh. now... Uh, Mick Jagger's background singer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So these are the level of guys that we were. Killers. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is just. Killers. The, yeah. the era. This is just, this, this is just the peer group. So my thing is always like, and JT was playing with Sting, Lou Reed. My thing is, okay, if it wasn't parallel set of, set of circumstances where the resources were aimed, okay, you're going to do this. No, okay, you're not doing any of this side man stuff. Get your thing together. Get your Marcus and Omar, okay, you're not going to go play with Miles. You're going to do your own thing. If everybody was in a position where they had to make their own music as opposed to going and getting all this other money, yeah, I, th you know, I mean, 
Marcus ended up changing, you know, history anyway with you know with wait, the wait, various wait, wait. things he wait, did. Wait, wait. You're saying if they if they weren't offside manning yeah, if, in these powerful if, bands and they had to instead focus on their own thing, thing, what do you think would have happened? Well, you know, we'd be talking about whole different eras. We'd be talking about uh, there'd be a, another set of additions to the musical canon that don't exist simply yeah. because instead of just propping up other people's music. You know, yeah. And the, the the one outstanding example of that is Living Color. You know, Vernon just was like, I'm doing my thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, you talk about Marcus Miller, you're talking about these like giants, but I don't know that everyone has it to be Living Color. I mean, uh, I don't know. You know better than me. So I think that my point is in the context of the time. Yeah. That those were those were the options that were available. Yeah. So it was, you know, then part of that was, you know, just, okay, you know, okay, you're the black man, you're the bass player in the band. No, can you, no, you can't have your own band. You know, we got to remember that Sony had to, yeah, prompt, had to threaten to pull all of their videos to get Michael Jackson's video played on MTV. I mean, that's, that's how, really? that, yes. I mean, that's what we were looking at back it's then. It's not that long ago. No. It's not that long ago. Yeah. So, and I think that, when people talk about that time, you know, you can't divorce the, the con that time from the context. And to me, it makes it even stronger when you think about, you know, what the guys, again, the guys who were just like doing for self, whether it was Blood or Rashid, who had his own club. All these people who we think of as greats were people who just, you won't say off the grid, but just made sure they had their own thing that they were doing mm -hmm. that allowed them to do their thing because it, otherwise they weren't going to get in. Yeah, in a lot of ways they were just scraping two dimes together to make it happen. I yeah. mean, Rashid's place was his, his loft, Ali's Alley. Yeah, so yeah. and that's kind of what allowed these things, you know, that's kind of what allowed these things to exist. And as the scene kind of, you know, as the 80s kind of progressed and things kind of changed and people discovered hip-hop and discovered the graph scene and the, the money kind of just went exponential for those guys, uh, the, the things kind of started to change, you know. And then, as I said, when, you know, once once Reagan hit and you had, like, the whole jazz wars, you know, then that, yeah. Yeah, that, that thing became that thing. But talking specifically about what this, this thing, the thing culturally that's important about that time is this sort of collision moment of where you have this you know the culture of the black part of new york being discovered by everybody else in a certain kind of way that kind of just exploded this whole thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and you were completely cognizant of that like that attempt at commercialization of it well attempt is or not, not attempt I mean, people wanted to make money. I mean, of course. No, you know, no, I mean, I, that, that's you know, capitalism exists everywhere. It's like yeah. people, people were trying to get paid. I, no, I was caught. What I was cognizant of is uh, opportunity. You know, opportunities and lacks thereof, and making a way through these times. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is why for guy, you know, guys like me, somebody like Lester Bowie is so important because Lester really understood how to negotiate doing what you want to do in a way that worked in a way that was both lucrative 
and creatively rewarding. Mm-hmm. He always did. I mean, he basically always did what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. and he just did it. You know, and that was just always an example for us when we were tr- trying to figure out how to scrape by or whatever you call Lester. Hey, what's in? And he'd give you some piece of advice, and you yeah. go do it, and then okay, oh, now I got money. Okay, thanks, Lester. <laughs> you know? he, he was like that. Yeah, it was like that. Yeah. And he was he made himself available to people. Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah so he, you know, he did. And and then the, you know, I mean. And I always say to people, I mean, this whole scene that we all play now, the avant jazz scene of Europe, whatever, that scene didn't exist. They made that scene. The art ensemble, when they moved over there, they created that, they created that scene. That's an important thing to talk about. Yeah. So it's, it's, always, it's, it's always kind of been like that, you know. So I guess, uh, so what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about that early 80s time. Yeah. And, I guess the reason that I'm thinking about that now is because to kind of piggyback forward, I'm thinking about this kind of resurgence of, you know, Tubman and sort of people kind of looking at this thing, that music again, Uh and just kind of thinking about how that's framed in terms of, you know, what I do and thinking in terms of, you know, the fact that I kind of went away from that world for from the world of uh the jazz world I just got tired of it yeah you know for a variety for a variety of reasons i guess you know and to be frank part of it was you know was still you know the racial issue was a part of it frankly of course and yeah. uh you know so uh thinking you know, there was a point well there's two things for me as far as why i kind of just left the jazz world alone for a while one and they they both kind of happened on, ironically enough, on the Power Tools tour. Power Tools was you, Frizzell, and, and, um, and Ronald Shannon, Ronald Shannon Jackson. And that was, you know, that was the point where I kind of actually, okay, now I finally, I'm like an A-level jazz guy now. Right. I'm doing these things. We're the festivals. Fest, so we're the headliners. Yeah. We're, okay, okay, so we're here. I'm, okay, I'm here now. But there were two things that happened. One, I remember we did a gig. I remember watching Charles Lloyd's band. And I guess Charles was in his 50s then. The whole band was in their 50s. The audience was in their 50s. And I was in my late 20s at that time. And I'm looking at this and I'm kind of like, dude. Right. <laughs> They're in their 50s. You know, and I'll come back when I'm 50. You know, and I don't need, you know, I'm, gonna go do, I'm a kid. Let me go have some fun. You know. Yeah. So. That's an important realization. <laughs> you, know? you have to stop and look around and say, hey, who am I making music for? And it's like, nah, I, I can do this when I'm 50. Yeah. And the other part you know, was, you know, which actually affected Shannon a lot more than it did me, was there were quite a few festivals, jazz, quote, unfestivals. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in the context of that tour, which is a short tour, it stood out even more because we only, we didn't do that many gigs. There were, on the majority of those gigs, Shannon and I were the only African Americans on the gig. That's fucked up. You know, so Shannon took that much harder than I did in a certain kind of way. I kind of, you know, he he was older. He'd been out. And this was part of for me, it was part of a larger. I mean, I I guess I understand whether I liked it or not. I understood it. You know, that was part of the era, this whole era of when the beginnings of when the Europeans were trying to, to figure out how to play their own jazz. So they were trying to get away from Americans, uh-huh. and get away from, you know, 
and trying to figure out their own influences. So I got that part to a certain extent. But for me, it became, well, you know what? We already have been a part of this Black Rock Coalition for a few years now. We're fighting this battle in the rock world. If I got to fight this battle anyway, I'll go fight it somewhere. I'm going to have fun fighting it. I'm not going to fight it. In the, <laughs> I'm gonna, not going to fight this. Fight the battle in the jazz world of if jazz is black music or not. I'm not going to, you know, that's not something I'm interested in. Right. You know, so I kind of just decamped out of. And where'd you go? start playing rock i mean i had a rock band that you know for its era was pretty much respected as you know the best live band in new york which band was that it's called i and i i and i right yeah was that a bad brands reference no no that was more uh uh a rasta reference i mean and to the extent that they're rosters too it's a rasta reference and uh we got signed to sony uh, we put out a record. We did one lap around America, opening for Body Count. The record did. The record didn't stick. We're talking like 1991. We're talking the yeah 91. When that first Body Count record. Came yeah. Out. So yeah. That must have been an exciting tour. It was. It was. It was very interesting for me. Yeah. Simply because, uh, as I said in the earlier part of the conversation, you know, I lived with my grandma in the South Bronx, and my aunt. I spent a lot of time in the South Bronx as a kid. And, um, you know, so we run up and we're with these guys, all these South Central guys, and they're all kind of like, a lot of them are from the hood and they're all like gang members and they're Mm -hmm. all trying to be intimidating. And I'm kind of like, (laughs) I'm from New York. (laughs) I'm just like, no, it's not even that. It's like, your gang shit don't intimidate me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always tell people, you know, the, the area where my aunt lived was the literal Fort Apache. Yeah. Bronx, and I always tell people like I remember when they were talking about the 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 war in Iraq when they asked the general, uh, "Well, how are things in the green zone?" And he says, "It's okay. It's not as bad as Fort Apache." <laughs> <laughs> right. So this this is how I grew. So you're not going to intimidate me, right? You know. So anyway, but were you were you? Um... And there was a lot when that first body count record came out. Yeah. That was all the news was talking about yeah. was like, is this music going too far? And there's you know the big controversy around Cop Killer. Did that controversy find its way to the shows? Oh yeah, I mean you know come on man, he's the guy. I mean first of all, I love Ice T. Let me put that out there. Yeah. Whoever you know, I I know that him and 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 Vernon and them had their problems deservedly so because I'm from the team of Vernon. I don't use the N-word around the house. Right. I don't, it's not a part of my vocabulary, so I get, you know. Uh, but somehow they took me for some kind of like nice middle class kid not knowing that, you know. But how that got squashed was me and Ice had a conversation. We found out that we knew some, you know, he was he's actually from the Bronx. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's actually from the Bronx. Well, you know, and he moved to L.A. Oh, man, I thought he was, like, down home, South Central. Well, he's got, you know, he got relatives everywhere. You know, I have my relatives live in Hartford. His relatives live in L.A. Right. So once we found out that we had the— And he had Africa Islam in the band who was Bambada's, like, right hand. Right. So once it got established, once that connection got established, then— Things got cool. They were going to get cool anyway because one of them— one of his guys was going to get knocked out, but it is what it was. <laughs> but everything, it didn't have to go to that point. Yeah. So, 
I always told people, you know, he had he had these guys with him. I, first of all, I had a really great conversation about that with him, and I asked him, so, "So, why do you have all these guys on the road with like you? an entourage?" Yeah. yeah, he said because I want him to know that there's more of the world besides the hood. And I said, I 100% respect that. Yeah. I support that. So yeah. ma- that whole thing became cool for me after that. Yeah. Because, yeah, when you grow up in the hood, I mean, there's people even, that was the whole thing when I was a little kid. People hadn't been to the city. Right. You know, you can live in Brooklyn. Concept and, of two and two yeah. is some foreign thing. So I got it. So to show them that there's more to the world than their block, especially, in, you know, South Central at that time, that was, that's noble. Yeah. You know, so he, because of that, he's my man. All the he had all these loudmouths, and none of the loudmouths. I'm kind of a loudmouth. He had one dude who just you never who never said anything. That was the one dude I was actually afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> the one dude who was just kind of off in the corner, yeah, yeah, yeah. didn't cause any problems. You didn't hurt nothing. That's the one guy. Oh, watch out for him. Out. <laughs> Turned out, you know, a couple of weeks and find out he's on. Uh, work release he'd been in jail for 20 years on a murder charge blah, blah, blah. yeah and i was gonna see i am from the bronx <laughs> uh, that's how a criminal would act a yeah. criminal would not act like ah, flashy and yeah no he's the criminal <laughs> you know so anyway so well, i and i does the tour so i and i and you know the record didn't stick you know everybody's got their own you know my A&R has his own opinion about why the record didn't stick. I have my own opinion. I don't want to feel like going into that. Yeah, but, but it didn't blow up in the way that it didn't blow. Yeah. yeah, so you know the thing kind of fell by the wayside, and I was kind of looking my wounds, figuring out what to do, and uh, got a call from uh, Chris Haskett. Hey, we're looking, you know, for somebody. Blah blah blah. And I guess I should preface this with that. You know, I went to the first Lollapalooza with the, the guitar player from my band. and Who was the guitar player? Uh, Gary Paulson, who uh-huh. ended up playing with Zion Oak Syndicate for many years. Right. He was a guitar player in I and I. So we're kind of there, kind of just, you know, I'm single at that time, and I'm kind of just looking at girls right. or whatever. And he's like, this band is really good. And I kind of like, I wasn't really listening to him. But then when he said that, I started listening to him. It turned out it was the Rollins Band. Rollins Band. Yeah, so that's when I was, actually started paying attention to them because I, I was late to the game with Rollins Band, yeah. honestly. But, Had you been a Black Flag fan? Uh, that's a interesting story. I'm a Bad Brains fan. <laughs> I just, actually, I want to stop for a second. My first instrument was the electric bass. Yeah. And I feel so, and I feel this more with age, more and more. Yeah. Daryl Jennifer yeah. is like the greatest thing to ever happen to the electric bass, in my yeah. opinion. I, I'd be watching Daryl play, listening yeah. to him, just watching his hands. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said this on here before, and I'm dead serious when I say this. When I hear Daryl playing a bass line and mm-hmm. Dr. No soloing, mm-hmm. I, I put that duo. Up there with like Coltrane and Miles, mm. just like the heaviest thing you're ever going to yeah. hear. Well, I mean, and to get to the reason why, I mean, when I found out that they had a jazz fusion group before they got into punk rock, I was that's like right up my alley. Yeah, you know, because the the other going jumping backwards a little bit, contemporaneous people always think about there's a straight line from graffiti to hip hop, but. If you were around, then you know that uh, one of the great early graffiti guys was a na- guy named man named Undertaker Ash, who was also a DJ. Okay, Undertaker and, Ash, and he used to DJ down the street from where I lived, 
And his parties basically consisted of he would play some breakbeat stuff, but he would always play a lot of punk rock too. Mm-hmm. And it was, and that had a different, he had a lot of the sort of black Brit expat community that lived in New York at that time would come to his party. So we had this like, I love going there because, you know, those are the days when, you know, early days of the girls dressed different. They just mm-hmm. much more provocative than they did at the other clubs. So I was like, oh, we're going to that one. <laughs> And that's that was my introduction to punk rock music yeah. was through through Undertaker Ash. So this combination of fusion into punk rock was like that's just made sense to yeah. me immediately. And I should say the story of how I found out about the Bad Brains and this this goes back to Alfonia, which is again why Alfonia is so one of the main reasons why Alfonia. So we did so Alfonia kind of became our next protege. And Afonia was a very volatile individual. Uh, uh, so inevitably, him and Ornette had a falling out. Sure. And the thing kind of the thing kind of dissipated for a minute, and I hadn't heard from him a while. And he called me, and he's kind of like, hey, man, we got hurt. I'm like, great, what's up? He said, yeah, I need to come to, this place, come to West Beth. I'm like, West Beth, what's that? His place on, you know, he told me where West Beth was. So we go there, and we're rehearsing, and we're, He's got some great new music, bigger band, you know, mm-hmm. doing the thing. And at the end, towards the end of the rehearsal, this old guy comes walking in. And I'm kind of like, this old, uh, <laughs> old dude's kind of just sitting there, just chilling. And so at the end of the rehearsal, Melvin's like, hey, Melvin, I want you to meet Gil. And I'm kind of like, oh. oh, shit, this old dude is Gil Evans. <laughs> so Alphonia went from being Arnett's protege to Gil Evans' protege. Damn. Right. So how this relates to the Bad Brains is that I guess the second time, second rehearsal, we go up. Gil lived in West Beth. So we go upstairs and hang in Gil's apartment and the sons are there, Miles and Noah. What's up, Miles and Noah? I'm, I'm, I want to hear the Sunday night record, so put it out. Anyway, uh, so Miles was in a punk rock band at that time. Miles was a bass player. No, excuse me, not Miles. Noah. Noah plays Miles plays trumpet. Noah's the bass player. Noah Evans. Noah Evans. Noah was a bass player in the band. I can't remember the name of the band. But the drummer in the band was Mackie. Mackie. Who was the drummer for the Cro-Mags at that time and later became the drummer for the Brains. Okay. Uh Mackie had a cassette with him that hadn't been released yet. And he just popped it in and I was just kinda like, What's that? <laughs> and it was the the first bad the, the black dot. Yeah. It was the first Bad Brains record, and that was the first time. It was because of Gil Evans that I found out about the Bad Brains. Isn't that some shit? Yeah. So, and I was like, from like two notes in, I was like, these guys are the greatest guys ever. I, I still feel that way. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so I just became straight up fan of theirs. You know what I mean? I mean, look, if you want to really understand the power of music, watch go to a Bad Brains show. Yeah. Like, if you can do that, <laughs> then you know we you realize oh well, maybe we're not all working at the best of our capabilities. <laughs> so so going back to Lollapalooza, you check out Rollins' band. And you say this is actually yeah, these guys are good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Anyway, yeah. so that became important later. The band broke up, and you know my band broke up, and I'm kind of I'm still signed to Sony, and I'm kind of trying to figure out what the next thing is. I had kind of written some songs, but they I wasn't loving them. You know, I was loving the ensemble I had, but I I hadn't quite grokked how to, you know, take this thing up a level. And Chris called, and I was kind of like, eh. 
yeah, why would I want to do that? So I, I kind of just, I won't say blew him off, but I didn't return his call. And uh, it just turned out that uh, my partner at the time was very good friends with uh the person who who was uh, Rollins Man A and R person, mm-hmm. and I guess she got the A and R got in her ear, and you know, my lady at the time was kind of like, oh, "Go do it. What can it hurt?" And I was kind of, you know, actually, you kind of got a point. You know, I mean, it's not going to hurt to do it, so I did it. So to say, he called again, and it's when he called again, I was like, "Okay, I'll come play." So you know, it was, I guess it was a couple of weeks in advance, and I was kind of just thinking to myself, "Okay, I'm going to do this thing. So what should I do?" And I kind of just sat around and came up with a couple of riffs to bring to the jam. And uh, so the jam comes, and literally the first thing we played is the riff that became the song Civilized. Oh, my God, yeah. That's literally, that was a riff I had been working it. That's one of the riffs I worked up in the house that I brought. So that was literally, so we jumped in and we started playing. I was like, oh, I have to do this now. Was Sim <laughs> Payne was playing drums? Yeah. Did you know Sim from New York? I didn't know Sim. I knew a about him uh-huh. you know uh you know but i didn't i hadn't played with them i knew about him i loved his playing on the records i mean they were a great band they didn't need to me to be a great band i mean and i knew about the band simply because it was this weird sort of parallel universe like i said i didn't really seriously pay attention to them until the Lollapalooza thing mm-hmm. but i knew about what they were doing, I knew about what Andrew was doing because, you know, I guess we had kind of crossed, when I was in Sonny Chirac band, we kind of crossed paths in Amsterdam. I guess they played at Paradiso the day before yeah. we did or the day after. So somehow, you know. But that period of time, I mean, you know, Henry Rollins, uh, he's been, you know, he's an avid record collector mm-hmm. and he's been very vocal about championing music from all, you know, from noise to free loft jazz. Um yeah. I feel like at that period of time with like Sonic Youth, like there there was like p- the jazz. There people were bringing jazz musicians onto rock stages. Yeah, I mean that was a few years. That 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 definitely happened at during the time I was in the band. This was a bit. What the time I'm talking is a bit before that. We're talking like '93. No, I'm talking about when the the Chirac tour was back in '89. Oh right, maybe. right, right. But yeah, but by '93, by that time, yeah, I mean we, you know, and Henry. By the time I was in. So long story short, so we do the thing, we do the the audition. I'm kind of okay. This is fun, you know. And and it wasn't an audition, but you know, I kind of I knew when I walked out that if I wanted to do it, I could do it. So you know, they had they auditioned everybody else. They needed to audition, but it was kind of a done deal by that point. So anyway, we joined the band. I joined the band, and yes, as you were saying, Henry was into all kinds of music. You know, Sim had been listening to Decoding Society. They were they were aware of Chirac, and you know, and then it goes, and then of course, you know, you find out about. Uh, you know, kind of back engineered some of the stuff with with Gone because Sim and Andrew were gone. They were gone. Yeah. And so you know, and then then I actually kind of went back and started listening to like Flag and you know hearing you know Gin's relationship to Pete Cozy or whatever, which is all, everybody's relationship. He's like the he's like the glue that glues all guitar players of the '80s together or whatever. But yeah, Henry was was and is a very astute fan of music and very deep record collector and Henry really simultaneously with that you know I guess I was living in the East Village at that time and you know he really got into the, the whole East Village scene Charles Gale and Matt yeah, Shipp yeah he and, signed yeah. Matthew he made a record he made a record with Rashid 
the spoken word record with Rashid and Charles at that time. Yeah. So that kind of reconnected like mm-hmm. me with a whole bunch of people that I hadn't, you know, I had stopped thinking about those guys. I'm, I'm rock and rolling now. Let y'all, yeah, <laughs> y'all yeah, fight yeah. that out over there. But then it's like, now nah, I'm seeing Rashid again, you know, Charles, I'm seeing all the guys from the neighborhood. So it kind of started bringing those two worlds back together. Yeah. I saw, I saw Rollins Bend, that version of Rollins Bend, summer of 1994 mm-hmm. with Helmet and Sausage. Oh, yeah. That band that Les Claypool had. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing, too. I mean, I'm, this, some, these, some of these stories are rehashes, but whatever. People have, you know, I, uh. so I don't mind rehashing a couple of these. Uh, my partner, the same one who convinced me to join, to basically go jam with the Rollins band, uh, bef- she, before I had met her, she had been roommates with Paige Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess they all came... I guess when Amphetamine Reptile signed their big distribution deal with whatever major they signed with, we went to their sort of showcase gig. Okay. And, you know, the Cows, if, I can't remember all the groups. The Cows played. Uh, Melvin's played. That's amazing bands. Uh, Helmet played. Somebody else. The one that I really liked was the Melvin's, actually. Melvin's and one of my favorite bands. We kind of hit it off, and I... You know, I talked with those guys a little bit, and kind of they were looking for a bass player at the same time. They're always looking for a bass player. And I was kind of like, you know what? I could make this work. But I don't want to oversell how far I went down the process, but one of the things, one of the reasons when it became a choice between, okay, I know I can do the Rollins band, Uh or I could probably do the Melvin things too if I felt like it. I I didn't want to be Melvin Melvin. (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't want to be Melvin Melvin, so I kind of like let that thing kind of uh-huh. like dissipate, <laughs> and I jumped onto the Rollins Man thing. Melvin's, uh, they're kicking ass, dog. They, they're, they're so doing, good. They're doing well. I mean, we did it. I haven't seen any of those guys for a while. I, I, the last time I saw the, the gang was when they were doing that tour with, with, with Einar. Joe Lally called me to go, me and him play duet as okay. as uh one of the opening acts. Uh-huh. And that's when they were doing the tour when they had the double band. Right, uh, with Phantom Us. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, no, with were, Big Business, right? Yeah, when they had like the six Yeah, yeah, piece. Cody and Jared. Yeah. Yeah. That, w- amazing. that shit was amazing. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, time has been kind to y'all. They, they don't stop. Yeah. Melvin's don't stop. They, I mean, it's insane like, yeah. how they, how hard they push. Yeah, so so anyway, so instead of becoming Melvin, Melvin, I became <laughs> Melvin of the Rollins band. But yeah. So. And that period of time was good. Yeah, that was, it was cool. It was good, you know, and and it was good. And you I know, mean, that record weight was huge. Yeah, you know, it was it would be even for this era it would be huge. It was, it it did well. It went gold. It didn't. I don't think it hit platinum. I well, got. I, I, got this, I think I was in like eighth grade when it came yeah. out. And anytime I turned on MTV, Liar was on. Yeah. It, it it definitely did its moment, you know. Yeah. In comparison to like what Vernon and did, it was it was a cute record, but it did its right. moment. But you know, for me, it kind of became obvious that the thing was starting to dissipate. I think a bit before it became obvious to the other two guys in the band. So I kind of started. I started planning my exit strategy. So I, I was doing whatever I was doing. But the point to this particular conversation is that is an era that's when as you said a lot of the you know sonic youth got into free jazz and charles said and that's when this new generation of 
jazz fans kind of got introduced to the music. They're kind of like guys who were also into metal or rock that got introduced to jazz by the bands that they were in. And I guess what I'm realizing that that era of free jazz had a whole different aesthetic than the era that I was in, you know, mm-hmm. from the harmonic era. Mm-hmm. So that era kind of became the sort that that aesthetic kind of became, and especially you know, you know, and son, I remember reading this thing about uh, aesthetic piece, and and Thurston saying something about he didn't like music, you know, he like didn't like music with rhythm in it, and I'm kind of like, okay, that ain't got nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm still right. I'm still kind of like. But where we are now, another 20 years later, is now f- that music from that era when, you know, the er- that late 70s, early 80s era, people are looking at that music now, which is kind of interesting. Man, I was talking about this with, with Trevor Dunn. Yeah. You, you see this happen. You see, like, all of a sudden, groupthink takes over and people get really interested in something from the past. There's all these bands popping up, like, young, like, white college music conservatory kids are, it's seemingly they're just discovering primetime for the first time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I actually did listen to some of that. And hello, Trevor. I haven't met you yet, but I'm sure I'm Trevor's like, the best, yeah. But I'm going to scream on you on one thing, because you said something in that that kind of irked me a little Uh-oh. bit. You said a harmonic, whatever that is. There is no whatever that is. It's a system, and you can look it up. <laughs> uh-huh. It has tenets, you know, and which goes into... A conversation, I guess we'll jump ahead about the Vision Festival. And mm-hmm. it goes into this whole idea, you know, even in terms of, you know, the, one of the things that always put into another context is like when you talk about athletes, it's always the, the black athlete is always gifted and the, the white athlete has fundamentals. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of like there are fundamentals to, to what Ornette does. I remember yeah. seeing this one particular gig of primetime. They were in Ann Arbor and we happened to be there. And I remember the band started off, and I, I don't know if, I don't think Jamal was there. I think uh, Al must have been playing bass. And they started off, and it was just this kind of weird cloud of notes that was just kind of coming at you, like, huh? And the band played for three or four minutes by themselves. And then Ornette started playing, and Ornette played through that thing like it was changes. It right. was the most amazing musical moment. I've had in my life where this cloud turned into this, oh, there's, this is systematic. He's got them doing these things and he's playing through it. So I think that for me, to kind of look at these things and not look at it, you, you're not playing primetime if you're just going to play their music. I mean, because you got, it was what they did that day. It would have been totally different if they did it another day. Mm-hmm. There's a whole system behind it that is important. That's what to me. That's what what's important in you know 2019 as opposed to 79 is that there's a system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we did two years ago uh, for Winter Jazz. Tubman did Harriet Tubman plays free jazz, and we. And so we're again Harriet Tubman's U J T Lewis and uh, Brandon. And Brandon Ross. Brandon Ross. Yeah. So we did an expanded ensemble with uh, basically the James Brandon Lewis trio. Amazing. And Jamie Branch and Darius Jones. Shit. So that was the group that 
we put together to do that. It's a strong group. And as happens in these situations, since it was my idea to do it, I had to do the transcriptions. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of thought, I kind of tried to fluff it off on Brandon. So, hey, Brandon, and Brandon did some of it. And then I kind of realized, oh, Brandon's done like 20% of it. So I got to do sit down and do the rest of it. Yeah. So I'm sitting through transcribing all of this stuff. And kind of when I finished is when I really kind of got that it wasn't that Ornette was trying to be a genius. It was that he had a very specific thing that he was hearing that he was trying to get other people to hear that they weren't really hearing. And he Mm -hmm. didn't really, he was trying to get them to kind of grok this language and free jazz was probably the The record free jazz. The the record free jazz was an attempt to kind of transmit this thing that he was hearing to a larger ensemble, but it was very obvious what things in there were his systematic things. Uh And, you know, so for me, that was kind of a turning point in terms of what I wanted to do musically because I was kind of like, okay, so I did this, you know, and you just recently going in and 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 looking at free jazz. Well, I'm, it's, it was this is two years ago now. It's not recent, okay. but going in and kind of just uh, in the context of all the other things that had happened. We had done a we had done a you know Araminta Tubman had done Araminta with Wadada, so I spent a lot of time not a lot of time, but I had a few extensive conversations with Wadada about his system. Uh, one of the foundations of what. Tubman's, you know, kind of early at times of Tubman is the fact that Brandon and JT both play with Henry Threadgill. Mm-hmm. So they know Threadgill's system. Which is insanely complex. Yeah. So for me, it just became a question of, uh, okay, so now, and then, you know, Shannon passed and then Cecil passed, right? And then it, Cecil, who had his own system. Mm-hmm. So for me, it became a question of, okay, so time to, Okay, we've been apprentices a long time. It's time to be, what's our system? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, so I think for me, transcribing the the free jazz thing is the point where I realize, okay, no, okay, now I'm, I'm ready to go put my own system together. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. But I guess to kind of go back to this idea of natural talent versus, you know, fundamentals, mm-hmm. all of these guys have systems, you know, mm-hmm. and I think... That's what makes them interest. That's why people are interested in Wadada now. That's why inter- people are interested in Threadgill now. And for Arnett, there's a system there. It's, he's a great composer, and he has a system. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to interface with his music, at least understand that there is a system. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even if you want to ignore it, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody, nobody's going to say, "Hey, you know, playing counterpoint, whatever that is, it's a system." Everybody mm-hmm. understands it's a system and everybody does their homework and they know how it is and they either play it or they ignore it, but they don't just fluff it off like, oh, it's a bunch of dudes just put, you know, and it's the same thing with, with, with Arnett. It is not my job to kind of champion that. That's Donato's job, mm-hmm. you know, Jamal's job. But I guess why it's important, I'm kind of jumping ahead, why it's important is uh, talking about the Vision Festival. I mean, you know, specifically why that, Patricia voiced specifically why that exists in the context. We had, we had like, she put together like a, a free jazz conference. I guess we did it last week. And, oh, over at uh, Angel Orange? Yeah. yeah. And in the meetings for what we were going to discuss and how the, the 
the issue of diversity came up and the lack of, you know, proper female uh, representation in, in the music currently. And Patricia brought up the point that the Vision Festival was started <laughs> because there was a lack of African-American male mm-hmm. um, uh, voice in the music. And her purpose of putting that first fully in the, together in the first place was to make sure that these guys who had come up with this music, who came up with these systems would be recognized. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important thing to kind of say, I mean, what? I mean, it's it's funny because when you look at modern classical music, most of the virtuosos are not of the culture that birthed the music, but no one's trying to erase that culture, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I feel like with jazz, it's almost like people feel like they have to erase the culture that birthed the music to include themselves in it. I feel like that happened. And that's what happened in the, that's why I stopped playing jazz in the first place. Cause that's what, that's what was happening back then. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if we're going to go forward with this, I think that there should be some, that, that has to be acknowledged just like the, the erasure of, of women from, from jazz has to be acknowledged and move. And there has to be some like affirmative action in mm-hmm. that sense to make sure that women's voices are, are represented in music. I think that, you know, I'm not going to ask for reparations, <laughs> but I think that it should, you know, I mean, that's one of, one of the many reasons the band is called Harriet Tubman. It's kind of like, okay, this is about, you know, free jazz was about a very specific uh, cultural moment. And it comes, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it gives voice, it's, it's the voice in a process of developing this music that came to, together from, you know, out of the minds of African Americans. That doesn't mean other people can't play it. Doesn't mean that other people can't be great at it. it doesn't, mean, doesn't mean other people can't innovate it in it. But it does mean that at root, it has a certain representation that should be validated. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of been one of the overarching things for me over the, you know, over the course of. What I mean, it's actually one of the things that makes the music interesting for me. I go through these arcs where, these kind of long career arcs where I'm more interested in more commercial, quote, music, mm-hmm. and more non-commercial. I'm definitely in the middle of a sort of looking at, right now, it's, it's kind of, I'm almost kind of back to where I was when I was a kid. I'm really looking at the roots of the music and looking at, what the commonalities it's, it's almost like when i when i learned how to play bass one of the things that when i when i was in the early days one of the things i did was go all the way back as far as i could back through the history of the instrument mm-hmm. you know starting with i always give the example one of the things i wanted to look at is what is it that jamie jameson did that jimmy blanton also did mm-hmm. you know which things survived which things on instruments survived 70 years because there's mm-hmm. things that come and go you know People are, you know, slap bass came and went away. You know, things things come and go. 
but what things are what things maintain themselves through the history of the instrument? Then you listen to Gimbri. What things are you know? Mm-hmm. What things were they playing in Morocco a hundred years ago that we're still playing that Bootsy is playing? Right. You know? <laughs> so it's yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. like you listen, you you listen to these things, and I'm kind of doing that now with with with. Uh, not so much jazz as much as just music. Well, how can I put this? Well, I mean, most of the popular music of our era. Currently. Yeah, of of the current era stems from some innovation in African-American music or some innovation in African music as it re- constituted itself in the world now because right now the big thing is a lot of people are taking from dance hall reggae which takes from soca and blah 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 right but one of the things i'm looking at is what is it that's in even pre-jazz music that we still hear today mm-hmm. so i've been listening to a lot of ragtime mm-hmm. listening to a lot of the early jazz the earlier you know the early early jazz and kind of just kind of taken from that uh one of my Big things for the past few years has been uh, concentrating on on the culture of my dad's side of the family, the Gullah Geechee culture, and I just is that from like the Outer Banks of North Carolina? Or? Well, it's further south than that. Starts okay. in, from Charleston down to Savannah is okay. the main uh, cultural area, right? And it's a series of islands that start off, you know, where those where that set of people is from. That's where my dad's family's from, and just looking at their contribution to jazz, which has kind of gotten written out in this sort yeah. of New Orleans centric the jazz started a New Orleans thing that also happened in the eighties. <laughs> well, I think of one person in particular who you know you might want to look to for that. And kinda correct kinda correcting correcting the, the record in that sense of what contributions those people have brought to the music and kind of bringing s- certain things. And even on the latest time of record I use a you know the first song on the record is a composition of mine called uh, Father Unknown. And the conceit of that is this: the song is based off of a really old African American rhythm called Padding Juba that drapes back to like Padding Juba. Yeah, that drapes back to like the turn of before. You find you can find references to it like in the eighteen seventies. Wow! And basically, it's a simultaneous four four and three eight or three sixteen, however you want to count it. It's a really complicated rhythm that kind of just. It's just one of these innovations that black people just threw out there. Okay, we're tired of this one. On to the next thing. Right. And I'm kind of just looking at music, listening to a lot of turn of the century music and just kind of listening to some of the rhythmic innovations that happened and kind of just, you know, and kind of relating that to, you know, what I still do and looking at what they say. Are we talking about from the from the perspective of just better understanding music and how you relate to it or even looking at like reincorporating some of the stuff into what well, you're doing? I wouldn't say reincorporate. I would say kind of highlighting. Highlighting, right. Because we're doing it anyway. You know what I mean? It's kind of, we just don't know that, you know, what rhythm does Scott Joplin use that, uh, you know, John Bonham played in the 70s or whatever. <laughs> you, yeah, know? Yeah. you know, it's kind of like, oh, uh, uh, what, what things... Um, I get, you know, I I have I have a presentation that I do on this, so I don't want to go too deep into that. At some point, you know, mm-hmm. somebody should just hire me to do the presentation yeah. in New York. But there's this real idea 
I'll, I'll, just, I'll just give the spiel. I always tell people that it would be very difficult to get to Elvin Jones through Havana, but you can get to him fairly easily through Charleston. Huh. You know, so it's it's there's a very particular way that the African rhythms got flipped in the United States that you don't find anywhere else. And you can hear that going back to ragtime. Yeah. And you have to if if you're not looking, if you don't know what you're looking for, it just kind of it just kind of looks kind of random or it doesn't look like there's any systematicness to it. You'll, oh, you'll just say, okay, there's syncopation. But if you know what you're looking for, you say, okay, this is what this is. This is the geometry of it. This is how I reproduce it. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of, uh, Father the Unknown was kind of like step one of looking at that. You know, I mean, it's interesting because you think about talking about Philip Glass earlier and Steve Reich, those guys. Uh, a lot of the things that they think these, that they're sort of famous for, for these, these cycles or whatever, that's what African-American music is, mm-hmm. you know, very particular. This is a very particular sort of cyclical uh, logic to African-American music as opposed to Cuban music or Brazilian music. And that's kind of something that I'm, I've really yeah. been carrying on so, lately. So what is the, the gig that you're doing at Vision this year? Okay. On... And that's why I'm leading up to this this gig I'm doing at Vision Festival. Again, talking about systems, is a, a group that I call Guard Particle, which is a collaboration between myself and a theoretical cosmologist, a scientist named Stefan Alexander, who wrote the book that came out in 2016 called The Jazz of Physics. Mm-hmm. And the basic conceit of the book is that the book is about the connection between Einstein and Coltrane. Okay. And this is not a fanciful connection. Like Stefan went and had a extended conversation with David Alvaram, who verified that this is stuff that Train was very interested in mm-hmm. and talked about how they used to have conversations about it. And one of the hooks of this book is this drawing ma- mandala that Coltrane gave to Yusef Latif. I don't know if you've seen this. I've thing. seen it, yeah. Yes. And what that mandala meant for the music and how that mandala, how the idea of putting this mandala together relates to the idea of putting physics together. So basically, the music that we make explores the commonalities in thinking between uh, quantum physics and jazz. Mm-hmm. And we've done a couple of gigs already, um, and we've also done a thing where we've collaborated with a visual artist who is documenting climate change. And he was actually the embedded artist for NASA documenting climate change in Greenland. And we did a piece where we uh, used his art as graphic scores to generate our music. What I call coral oralizations of the Anthropocene. Uh, this piece we're doing. The piece we're going to do for the Vision Festival is based around the idea of the cosmic fabric. I always tell people that the way Stefan and I communicate is Stefan will tell me whatever cutting-edge physics concept he's been working on, and I will tell him either what African cosmological system or Buddhist, uh, or, or Buddhist philosopher already thought of the idea. So... We 
talked about this idea of the cosmic fabric, and I told I mentioned to him that that's a very common idea in a lot of West as African cosmological systems. We particularly um, keyed in on the Igbo people of Nigeria, who are all one of the main subgroups that got uh, forcefully sent to America. There's mm-hmm. actually my DNA has Igbo DNA. You know, that's part of my heritage. Mm-hmm. They have this, they call it Ogodo, which is the, the goddess wears the universe as a dress. And so, okay. So it's the same idea of, you know, strings, you know, the goddess, the, the universe is hanging, is hanging off of the, uh, the goddess's dress. So it's a string idea of strings and fabric. So I'm in the process. I'm actually started on a piece. I guess I started on it last week. I'm waiting to get the rest of the math Mm -hmm. from uh, Stefan. Basically, a lot of it is is, interesting because a lot of it, the math is based around this one kind of speculative mandala that he stuck in his book kind of as an afterthought. I won't say an afterthought, but as 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 a kind of sparking point, and it kind of you know, it's I actually key I wouldn't have keyed it on it except for the fact that uh, he kind of got a kind of snippy review in the Times about it, <laughs> and the, the 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 review really offended me. Yeah, because I felt like okay, this is another, this is the same thing. It's like you know. Okay, so we we got a brother writing a book about jazz, and, and the white dude's going to try to police it, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. So basically, uh, he decided to pick on Stefan for a couple of mistakes that Stefan made uh-huh. in the book, and some of the things, most of the things that he pointed as mistakes weren't mistakes. There were, I think, the guy who was trying to call him out some misunderstandings, but the one actual thing that was a mistake was the way he labeled this particular diagram and beyond the point of my thing is every scientific book has mistakes every math book has mistakes when you have an edition one of the book that's one of the things the second edition you correct the mistakes so I I felt he was just being snippy by point by not getting the point of the book which for me as I told Stefan when Stefan first told me about the book I said this is exactly the book I would have wanted to read when I was 19 it's about the con- it's about you know thinking about these connections that I think about. Mm-hmm. It's from a perspective of somebody from the Bronx. It's about these ideas that how science is actually done, as opposed to this is the jazz of physics. The, the jazz of the book, books, yeah. yeah. So I I was all in. So I was basically offended that he got a bad review. So I I kind of wrote a I wrote a a letter to the editor, which I never sent because it you know whatever forever reason. But the one thing that I kind of couldn't, I had to just say, okay, you got him on this one, was he had kind of mislabeled this diagram. But I actually looked at the diagram and I was kind of like, that, that misla- the mislabeling was actually the whole point. You know, and I looked at, when I looked at what he had gotten wrong, I was going, okay, this, this thing is actually the important thing about this. So basically, the fact that I had to look at that thing kind of generated this whole musical system. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it kind of showed me, you know, I could see that that's where Train got the idea for Giant Steps from. I could see that, okay, some of the harmonies that Alice Coltrane always uses that I hadn't quite figured out, that's where those came from. It just became this thing, you know, and when I listen to a lot, 
I'm, we're doing this. Tubman is participating in this project with Jason Moran and Alicia Hall Moran called Two Wings, where they look at music of the Great Migration. So they're looking at a lot of African-American classical music. When I hear certain things in that, I'm kind of like, oh, it's that same thing. It's mm-hmm. all from this very particular, them trying to solve a certain problem in trying to basically apply blues harmonies to Western music and how those things intersect and don't intersect. There's, this The solution is there. Mm-hmm. So I'm, so I'm going to be using a lot of, I've actually written quite a few things around some of the ideas there. So I'm going to, that's, that thing is going to be the melodic and rhythmic framework for this piece. Uh, as I said, I'm waiting for Stefan to send me some math. He's got this thing he's been looking on, you know, a better version of this thing that I'm talking about. He's going to work it this out. Is this for a large group? It's uh medium size, two drums, two bass, two sax, trumpet, uh, keyboards. Is that the free jazz instrumentation? It's a variation because he, yeah. he didn't have keys. And I'm also going to have a, a sound healing group with gongs and yeah. and uh, tuning forks and stuff. So I got to go buy the tuning forks because they're not, <laughs> they're not going to have the ones I need. So I'm going to have to, I got, actually, that's after this, I'm going to have to go order some tuning forks for this. Okay. Um, and that's ha- so that's uh, June 13th. 13th. Yeah. At Orensands or at um, Roulette? At Roulette. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, uh, yeah, so this is going to be like the first, like, piece, piece. So, I'm, you know, and I got to, again, you know, from the gracious time that Wadada has spent kind of kicking it with me, I'm, you know, going to do a graphic score, so I'll have that. Wadada's graphic scores are beautiful. Yeah, so I'm going to have that, and I'm, I need, hopefully I'll have some limited editions to sell at, at the Vision Festival. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how much writing I'm going to have time to do. I mean, just like notes, but at least, at least I'm going to have this, you know, a few of the scores available if people want to take them home. And, uh, because you know, June thirteenth. Yeah, yeah. You, gotta sell, you can't sell CDs. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it, to me, it's more interesting. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like people. I feel like people need. That's a whole other story. People need to have something to take home. Yeah, you know what I mean. So for those people who need to have something to take home, they'll have that. And yeah. I, plus, I, I mean, I got to do the score either way, right? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got to yeah. have the guys play it. So that's that's, that's kind of this week's work is I got to pull it. I got to, Stefan's got to send me his half of the score. And I've got to kind of decide how I'm going to, I already, I got to kind of make some decisions about how I'm going to actualize my my part of the score. Yeah. We we left out an important important piece of what you're going to be doing at Roulette, and we should talk about it. All right. So, talking about uh, African American music and the innovations of African American music, I often frame around this around a quote by the father of innovation, a man named Joseph. Well, I remember his first name. His last name is Stumpeter. He's one of the main people that, he's gurus of business. And he has this quote that says, producing is making do with what you have at hand. Uh, How that relates to this is there was, in the early days of America, there was the slaves rebelled. And and rebellion was called the Stoner Rebellion. And I believe it was the governor of South Carolina was almost killed in this rebellion. 
So to prevent further rebellions, one of the things they did was looked at how they communicated and to make it very difficult for Africans to communicate, what they decided to do was take drums and horns away because drums and horns at that time are what armies use to transmit maneuvers to each other. So this, as you can imagine, had a very significant cost on the effect of African-American music, in particular in that part of America. I mean, obviously people in the, after, after the Civil War, people played horns again, and that's how, that's how trumpets and all of that came back in, after the North one. But the particular innovation that happened because the drums were taken away is that people started doing percussion on their bodies. And how that transmits to America today is people know hand bone or whatever, and that's what they think of when they think of body percussion, somebody, you know, just doing hand bone. But there's a whole intricate system of body percussion that's part of the Gullah Geechee tradition. And that's one of the things that one of the drummers that I'm having on the gig, who's the person I do, who's David Pleasant, who's the same person I do my Gullah Geechee presentations with, he's an expert at that. So that's going to be a major part of this is this sort of kind of kinesthetic drumming. Yeah. So he's going to be doing like body, st- as well as playing trap drums, he's going to be doing like body stuff, you know, kind of, you know. It used to be common when I started that a lot of the drummers were actually really good tap dancers as well. That's not so common these days. But David is kind of like in that tradition where he's like a really good on many levels. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that in. Yeah, David Pleasant. Yes. All right. Well, I think we did good today, man. I really appreciate you coming over and talking to me. Great, great, great. Thanks, Melvin. All right. That was me and Melvin Gibbs. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. He's an interesting guy, and he's a hell of a bass player. And as I said at the top of the show, check him out at Roulette this Wednesday night, 8 p.m., the group is called God Particle, uh, and it's definitely going to be something special. This Wednesday night, roulette. And that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. We'll talk to you next week. All right.